quick search, wake down one more number on your phone. Holiday in Vancouver, trying to find a home. Browse meat, inspect great landlord with fingers crossed. Try to stay in the city despite the rising cost. It's a suburban nightmare once you're south of 16th Ave. Will that line forever separate have not from have? Will duplexes solve all of our problems? Will two laneway houses allow density to bloom? Will my friends be able to stop sleeping on a bed behind some curtains in a West End living room? Click search, okay. wake down one more number on your phone. Last week I had the worst apartment viewing. Two rival wannabe tenants on the same tour. Rats grew through the kitchen and as I stood there bitching the other girl applied and paid the basement suite for service. It is November 19th, 2018, and Vancouver is about to embark on its attempt to create a city plan for the first time in 92 years. This is the Camby Report. I'm Matthew Naylor. I'm Patrick Meehan. And I'm Ian Bushfield. I would uh, take quibble with that, though, is that we did approve a city plan in 1995 called City Plan, one word, because apparently in British Columbia we like to make things one word that are two. Yeah, did it have a capital in the middle of the word? Yes, it did. Cause yes! That's, that's all we're able to do. Uh, and what City Plan did... Was City did, Plan spelled with an I? Or with a Y? No, with a Y. Oh, it um, wasn't sponsored by City Blank. Um, but what City Plan attempted to do was it created broad framework for how the city should be managed and how the city should operate. And then they did a series of community plans that ran, and they did most of them, I believe. Um, but we did do a city plan at that time, and it didn't get followed through even though they had the official community plans, in large part because of how difficult it is to do a city plan. Well... I'm really not going to fault a new council for vaulting ambition. So why don't we talk about some of our own ambitions, give us a Webster, and some of how you can uh, help us achieve that, which is to say, go to patreon.com slash report and uh, stay on our Patreon or sign up for our Patreon. It helps support, uh, you know, through one, two, or $200,000 donations per month. The journalism, in quotes, that we do here at the Camby Report. We're going to be launching new levels where if you throw a bunch of money at us, we haven't decided the exact amount, you can request a specific topic for that month for us to dive into. We'll choose how we cover it, but if you're really interested in one aspect of Vancouver politics, help us do that investigation. For example, do you want an in-depth investigation into the, like, adopt a drainage basin program and the, you know... Obviously, oh, seedy corruption. That's, I should really you know. check on my drainage basin. See? Seedy corruption. I haven't checked on it in a while. On today's episode, we're going to talk about what's been going on at the first real council meeting. We joined you a couple weeks ago to talk about the, I don't know, pretend council meeting we witnessed? It was called the inaugural The inaugural. Meeting. We'll go through some of the big motions that came through, look at some other bits and bobs. Then we'll move over to the TransLink board, where things are getting spicy and new unholy alliances are forming, and we'll close off with a Vancouver Auto, as always. So Patrick, you watched the entire council meeting I back watched to back. way more council meeting than I ever wanted to. I think I watched six hours on one day, and even more than that on another. Um, I just had it on in the background while I was at work, uh, with my headphones on, just sort of listening in the back. 
no one wanted to be there for that that second day of council meeting. But it was uh, honestly a lot of conversation came out, and it we're starting to see the form formation. I think of the way this council is going to look as things sort of cement themselves. Um, but it's going to be a while. So basically, every can- a bunch of councillors put forward motions of various things to try to plant their flag as this is their reason why they got elected, right? Gene Swanson moved several motions about, you know, ensuring that there was more social housing for things, you know. Pete Fry and Christine Boyle pushed for a renter's office in, in the city hall, which me- meshes with where they come from, right? Uh, Kennedy Stewart pushed for an opioid emergency task force, right? These things are meant to get the, the standing. But what everyone, what all eyes were looking on were really two major, major votes, uh, which was the duplex rescindment and the city plan, which confusingly were not one motion. But yeah, Colleen Hardwick uh, has moved forward with this rescinding of the duplex motion that came forward in October. Yeah. And, you know, as we found out last time, uh, there are some procedural kinks that the councillors are going to have to work out in how they are presenting themselves at city council. And so uh, Councillor Hardwick announcing that she was planning on voting against a plan prior to the actual consultation on the motion may have been less than fully in order. So so for for background, Diet Bremner plan, there was basically a plan to allow duplexes everywhere. So two years ago, the making room project, uh, making room components came out. There's been two years of consultation. Thousands of people were were, were consulted in whatever you want to call cons- consultation, which I think we're going to have a conversation about. And one of the motions that came out of it at the end in October was the motion to allow single family housing to be built as duplexes instead of just single family housing. We covered it, I think, fairly clearly. To give some context to what Matthew was saying there. Colleen Hardwick has called for called for in her motion for it to be the shortest amount of consultation period allowed under the charter uh, for her motion to go through. Vancouver, and, sorry, the Vancouver Charter. Yes, and mm-hmm. in her reasoning for that, she said that they need to move as fast as they can so that council can vote to rescind the decision. Now, remind me, during the election and prior to that, Colleen Hardwick was known for talking about more consultation, I believe, whether it was bike lanes through parks in Kitsilano or mm-hmm. well, allowing and, duplexes. And to, to, to be fair to, to, to the argument, uh, she, you know, there was an election and that election, you know, a, a party that opposed the duplex zoning won um, like five seats on council and a councillor who opposed the duplex zoning won her seat as well. So that's six, six seats. Uh, and so you could say that that was a form of consultation all on its own. I wouldn't, but they 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 make that case. Nor, ma- would, nor would either of those two councillors, as it turns the, out. But the other, mayor of Surrey would, yeah, though. The other but case we'll that, that the other case that they make is that this isn't a new rezoning. This is rescinding a rezoning that was done a month ago, which I have some sympathy for that argument. Uh, but I do find it deliciously ironic that they want to minimize consultation after screaming about consultation for the last several years. Well, and I I alluded to this briefly, but I think it's time for what apparently is going to be an ongoing segment, Matthew's Moonwalk, where I stylishly backpedal from uh, statements I made before the election. So congratulations, Melissa DiGenova and Adrian Carr for not immediately voting to uh, rescind the duplex rezoning. I think that your decision shows a forbearance and maturity in your roles as city councillors that you did not actually exhibit in your first terms. And so I I fully applaud your broad and 
farsighted approach to <laughs> consultation and community engagement. And I think that if you continue on this path, it will bear much fruit. So so to go back to Matthew, what you were saying there about Colleen Hardwick's statement, it's particularly problematic that she made that statement about how you need to go through the consultation as fast as possible to rescind something. Because in theory, counselors should not express how they're going to vote on something before the consultation period, because the consultation period, counselors should go into it with an open mind. And when I say should, and in theory, I mean according to the rules. And in fact, according to the rules, a counselor must actually recuse themselves from the final vote on a matter if they have, prior to the consultation, outlined how they were going to vote. Sorry. Well, and this was an active issue during the election because yep. Hector Bremner, as a sitting counselor, mm -hmm. couldn't answer questions about making room because for most of the election, it was in consultation. Yep. So, like, the thing about municipal councils is that they are not exclusively legislative bodies. They mm -hmm. are legislative judicial executive bodies which is weird and <laughs> yes and presents a fusion of our our government which we are used to in the legislative executive sense like you know i think philosophically canadians get used to like the fusion of the crown being drawn from the people's house but we're not very used to the idea of those people also being asked to sit with robes on in judgment like Law lords aren't a thing in Canada. Uh, and so the idea that our municipal councillors are also kind of judges is, which, which is it's definitely, definitely, definitely what they are. Well, and that's easiest to see when they're considering specific applications for planning purposes yeah. Yeah. or things. And they mm -hmm. have to actually consider it fairly. Yeah. And so that's, that's, this is going to be interesting to see if Colleen Hardwick has to recuse herself. And I believe based on what she said that she should have to recuse herself on a vote to rescind to, to, to change this bylaw but there, there were two other councillor comments that came out of this this whole process i want to hand it to michael weeb uh, who uh, motioned uh, an amendment that was defeated but his amendment was that uh this motion only come to the come back to council if duplexes are not considered as a component of the consultation for the city plan since if you're going to embark on a massive city plan which we're going to talk about next you may as well deal with it then and not put everything on hold. And in fact, uh, Gil Kelly and Sadhu Johnson, uh, the city man or the head of planning and the city manager respectively, both outlined that if we were to go through with a this process, it would put on hold the city plan uh, and put on staff time hold on planning for the city plan in order to do consultation on a citywide rezoning, which would presumably be a component of the city plan. And so this, really this was putting the cart in front of the horse and stopping the horse from moving anywhere. And part of the big issue with this undo duplex motion is people are already starting to make use of it. People are maybe. No. No, they're not. <laughs> what I had heard uh, from one, uh, I can't remember where it was reported, but I believe that there are only three applications so far that have gone through in the last month. Since Those the are people. Not many. <laughs> yeah, uh, to make use of it. And city staff at the time said that they believed that the only people that would make use of the, du the duplex zoning change were people that were already going to bulldoze a single-family house and build a new single-family house there, and instead they might choose to do a duplex. Now, we only have about 400 of those a year in the city, if I recall the numbers correctly. And, you know, if 10% of them do that in a given year, that's 40 Meanwhile, Jean Swanson uh, came out and she laid out, I think, uh, what I what I think is going to be a lo logic line that she's going to use as a counselor. And so I want to talk about it really quickly. 
because I was really impressed with it. it, she, it she sounded like she was all over the map, but by the time she was done, I had a good picture of it. Where she started by saying she doesn't like duplexes because she wants renters to have protections. She wants more rental, and she doesn't think that there's protections for renters in a duplex. She does want to densify single-family housing and see that densified, which I was, you know, props to her for that. Uh, she does want to see duplexes discussed in the city plan, and she does not want to waste all the time and money of going through this duplex thing when you're about to embark on a city plan, which is, I didn't think I was going to agree with Jean Swanson on a lot on council, and I, I was right there with her on that one. <laughs> She's not wrong on any of the points in my view. I mean, no. the no one, even Vision, wasn't talking about making room as this dramatic change to say, you know, make housing mm. affordable. It was, here's the minor step. Like you said, it's Bremner light, Matthew. Yeah. It does a tiny amount. It's not a bad idea, yeah. but let's not pretend it's anything it's not. Mm -hmm. And Swanson set that out and I think made the, I'm so sick and tired about this. Let's just not waste our time on this and do more important things. Uh, and then the NPA themselves, I think they were backing it more or less, but you could see, I don't think Rebecca Bly had too much uh, involved in it. She tried to, she tried to justify it and she had uh, arguments in, uh, that, that, that were reasoned. Uh, Sarah Kirby Young really focused on the, 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 the process of it all. She talked about how this was a, a, a midnight decision, like a, a, or last minute decision by, by the outgoing regime was the term she used uh, to describe Vision Vancouver. Uh, and she, I think she said in the it is an accurate political science term, like it's, but it, it connotes things that are not accurate. I mean, depending on whom you've talked to, I suppose. Um, because a regime in, it connotes some form of despotism. Um, Doesn't. yes, full stop. And, uh, she talked about how the, the decision had been done in the dead of night, uh, and other things. And so she was a little bit dramatic, but what ended up really happening was, a motion to refer it to staff to come back with a report uh, on how much it would cost and how to go about that process uh, and report back at the next council meeting in December. And at this point, Colleen Hardwick, who had moved the motion, became very angry. It was stark uh, as she went on what was a fire and brimstone speech. Well, like in particular, she called out Carr and DeGenova uh, for voting to refer something that they had previously opposed well and she said and yeah and, and what she said was she said stall delay repeat stall delay repeat you know the the, the angriest of voices i could hear uh, about how that was the, the whole way in which the opposition to her motion was going through uh how her motion needed to go through and then uh she outlined that she even though she had moved the motion was going to vote against referring to committee because she believed it needed to be voted on that day and it really was interesting because when the vote was tallied, it was not, it was 10 to one. Well, she's got, um, I think legislative junioritis, basically. <laughs> there is a, a surprising amount of, uh, non-power that you actually have once elected to a position of power. Uh, and, uh, learning that can be a painful process. And yeah, it, it, absolutely. Uh, and the interesting thing for me was to watch all four of her NPA counselors, sort of walk away from her on that one. And she stood alone as everybody said, yeah, let's send it back to staff to get some language done up and then we'll vote on it in a month. Uh, and so we'll, we'll see that might be cracks starting to form in this sort of NPA band. These are not people that have worked together much before. Uh, they no don't... more, as I mentioned and beat the drum on like constantly, the NPA is not a monolithic right wing mm -hmm. block. They are oh, a true. coalition of people mm -hmm. who are like, not New Democrats. 
Well, I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't even say that. Think, Sometimes they're New Democrats. I think. I think the 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 broad base of the MPA is a fairly monolithic base, and a lot of where it's. That's only because from. you are outside that base and can't no. see the nuance within it. No, that's not true at all. I think. I mean, I am outside the base. That part is true. But no, it's. I think they have a very strong base uh, that is very uni- that is very uniform, uh, located in the west side of Vancouver, southern end of it. Now, as we're starting to see this north south divide that Matthew you were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. But they have a very uniform base, uh, and a lot of their councillors come out of that. Sarah Kerber Young certainly comes out of that. Melissa DeGeneva certainly is a component of that. Rebecca Bly, though, comes from a bit of a, a similar, yeah. but more of a more of the arts community side of the the house uh, as opposed to the rest of it. She's like a young hip Elizabeth Ball. Yes, actually, hmm. that's that's accurate. But broadly speaking, their base is fairly uniform, and so it's. Uh, She's like similar a ba- to similar to, yeah, similar to how one city's base I'll is fairly uniform, uh, <laughs> and I'm not, yeah. And so Matthew, when you say that I don't understand it, I think that you're no, oversimplifying I, because I'm I not think saying that you don't understand it. I'm saying that you refuse to see the nuance. Which no, is, I think the the NPA has been very consistent over the last several decades, and just like you know, Cope has its a very uniform base where you can draw a lot of conclusions about where it's logical to come at where they're logically going to come from. You can do the same for the MPA. I think that there's only like eight people in Cope's I, Well, and I think and part of the challenge here is for the last decade, the NPA has been opposition mm-hmm. and it's not really government opposition, but in vision treated as, as such. And so the NPA just merely had to be united by not being vision. Yeah. And now that they have the like cusp of power, they have to actually figure out how to get along other than... No, what they they're against. They don't have to decide no, yeah. whether they're going to get along or not. They don't have to get along. They're no, they, oh, they don't have to. But if they want to exercise their collective power. Yeah, but maybe they don't have to do that. Well, and so that's, that's going to be the interesting thing is whether or not that sort of core NPA sticks together. And, you know, Colleen Hardwick, I don't think impressed herself amongst her NPA colleagues or in really anyone on that day. No, she certainly didn't cover herself in glory with that particular motion. I think that if you are going to have your motion defeated, you should accept it with a little more grace and alacrity than she showed. When it wasn't even defeated, it was referred to the next council meeting. (laughs) It's coming back. Well, other things we're going to keep coming back to, though, are this new city plan motion. Yeah, uh, Councillor Carr and Hardwick uh, motioned and seconded uh, the call for a city plan, a comprehensive city plan for for us to decide how to build the city. It's one of those things that's hard to disagree with in principle, I think. The idea overall that we should know what Vancouver is and have an idea of where it's going. I mean, that's what a plan is. This is a city. Let's have one. How can you be against it? Mm-hmm. Oh, and it seems like everybody was on board with the idea of going forward with it. Although I, I, I quibble with whether a city plan is helpful, but I think that's a conversation we're going to get into. What you did see was a series of amendments that were uniformly voted down. And so one of the amendments, you know, Gene Swanson came in and put an amendment forward that there be that staff put an emphasis on the city plan of protections for renters from dem evictions. Mm-hmm. It voted down. Uh, there was a motion that there should be a right to housing in all parts of the city. Every neighborhood for everyone. Yeah. The one city. Uh, which is the one city. Very one city. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the language of the, the amendment was essentially that there should be no parts of the city that somebody can't live in. And I think this is where we start to see how just figuring out how to start the city plan process yeah. is a microcosm of the problem with city planning. Yes. 
And so this... Everyone has a very different vision of what it will be. 11 people at a table were not able to, in a timely manner, even decide on the basic rubric of a city plan. I can't wait to see how this explodes and goes and gets bigger. So the end result was that, you know, a number of amendments came forward that were voted down by NPA and the Greens, namely Adrian Carr. Pete Fry wasn't there for some of the debate that on the basis of they didn't want to over prescribe the, the, the city plan. Uh, they didn't want to push the city plan in any one direction. They wanted to let the residents say what they wanted in a city plan. And a lot of the schism came down to whether or not it should be a city plan, which is what Boyle and a few others and we were, were arguing, or whether it should be a neighborhood, a series of neighborhood plans, which is what the NPA were arguing. And it's going to be really interesting to see what we end up scoping out in terms of these discussions. I'm not exactly sure what they mean. Like, I, I, under, I understand... Which, the NPA or the others? The others. Either or. Um, like, no, no, I, like, I, I get where they're coming from, and, and certainly I think that, like, a city plan of neighborhoods is a certainly good rhetorical point to, to stake out, but, like, the aspects of a city plan that I, I view as important are, one, things that the region are actually handling, you know, water, mm-hmm. sewer, electric, broadly. And, Ooh, and none of that is in the motion, to be clear. Yeah, but one of the things that, that Michael Weeb has, has mentioned in you know, his pre-election interview was that he found it annoying how when the neighborhood plans or the OCPs for the neighborhoods were considered kind of next to one another, they didn't really congruently mesh up in any kind of cohesive or coherent way. And and so that's why I I think that we don't really have a strong case against doing a city plan. Like, well, I think the, the problem for me is that I don't know what the benefit of a city plan is necessarily. I just think it's like unambitious. I think that like... Well, I, I, I think that you can be ambitious without a city plan. I think we, we saw a citywide rezoning to allow duplexes without a city plan. We could also do a citywide rezoning of RS1 to allow, you know, four-story walk-ups without a city plan. That the city plan doesn't necessarily... And I don't even know that a city plan necessarily helps you build the... It helps you do that rezoning. I actually think I might be in it more for the like visions and the goal statements uh, than 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 the actual like plan itself. Because if mm-hmm. someone can point to these are the criteria that we are trying to achieve, this is our plan, this is our vision, this is our ambition or aspiration, then that aspirational and ambitious statement it can be used to justify things that once people are on board with that ambition and you know it should be a broad based consultation process to to come up with like we want a city that people who are not millionaires can live in for example which is ambitious i think at this point mm-hmm. um we will eventually like be able to drag people along into policy proposals like oh no you have to do your recycling otherwise the planet dies uh that are individually uh kind of unpleasant well, and I think at its best, a city plan can get us away from the tragedy of the commons that has become Vancouver zoning issues, which is we're going to look at one specific case and everyone's going to fight tooth and nail for whatever position they have. A city plan, in theory, can force us to think more broadly than just that building that may or may not get built across the, the street. It's odd that you the, bring up the tragedy the, of the commons because it's like this bizarre mirror inverse of the tragedy yeah, of the commons. It, yeah. It's I, like everyone cares too much about each individual fucking blade of grass. 
I used to be, I used to agree with that. I used to think this idea that if we came up with a city plan, we could then move forward because we would have zoned things properly and so on. Um, but then I look at places that have very comprehensive city plans, Port Moody, the District of North Vancouver, City of North Vancouver have all undertaken fairly comprehensive action on city plans. And all of them have had proposals uh, for development that met the city plan, that fell under proper zoning, that city council pulled and required and voted down on the basis of a giant hue and cry from the public. Because when the public gets consulted and they say, yeah, I'd be okay with, you know, six story buildings. And then they, then you say, okay, well, it's going to go over there. They go, whoa, 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 whoa. Over there is not okay. When, you, when you're talking about uh, City of North Van, you're talking about Moodyville because Moodyville actually passed. But nonetheless, you still had a huge hue and cry and it became a political hot potato. Yeah, but like the thing that I said could be used as a tool did happen. They were okay. dragged kicking mm. and screaming into the thing. Yes, and that, but again, that that doesn't depoliticize it. And I think that I didn't say it was going to depoliticize no, it. No, no, I was <laughs> saying that it provides an additional justification for people to yeah. actually get to the but, thing. But I mean, Port Moody voted down something like like a four story building that was on an arterial strip on the basis of a, a, a hue and cry from the public that met with the OCP, the, the four-story 20-unit rental build in West Vancouver that was, again, the, the public rioted against. Just because you have a city plan, I don't think it gives... It, I don't think it necessarily gives political sway to allow for things to go forward. The arterial strip sounds like a, a gentleman's club for cardiologists. <laughs> All right, then. Um, we'll have lots and lots of time to debate. Yeah, the city plan as this moves forward. Well, and we're it's we we are going to see, uh, in theory, a very robust consultation. They're using the terms of reference from the city plan from the '90s, uh, which uh, should speak to quite a, a solid amount of discussion with people. Whether or not that discussion leads to people agreeing is going to be, well, I mean, it's not. Gonna it's happen. not going to. <laughs> <laughs> Whether it leads to an actual city plan. That can be pulled out of all of that. Right. Um, that then can pass this hodgepodge of mm-hmm. competing interest council. Yeah. Now, Matthew, I mean, I think we might agree on this. If the city plan talks about, like, what should RS1 zoning look like? And we say, how about four stories? Four floors and corner stores, I think, is the, the catchphrase. Um, mm, a catchphrase that so annoyingly misinforms people about what Jacobs was trying to say. But anyway. Um, yeah, but it's what I want to say now. But if we have yeah, that, but it's not what so, you're trying. So, anyway. but if we have that conversation and we talk about on a broad stroke, I th- I would I'd be happy with that. But I don't think it gives us the sway to be able to still do that in people's communities when it starts happening because I think you're going to have that right. But yeah, the, I think that takes a certain degree of political talent, and I'm not mm-hmm. sure that anyone has that right now. Yeah. But. And then and then the flip side of that is if we try to do real granular detailed planning on every neighborhood, well, I mean we're gonna we're not going to do anything for twenty years. No. Let the market do the planning. That's another kind of plan. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I just really enjoyed the look on both Ian and I's face. <laughs> what else happened at council that was worth talking about? Um, a couple of a couple of minor things that that, that could be talked about. Uh, election readiness and engagement was a motion that was moved by Carr and Kirby Young. Uh, that calls for uh, a review of the randomized ballot and in, with an eye towards, I think, going back to a, a more normalized ballot. We'll see what happens when the when the staff report on that, as well as a staff report, which I wholeheartedly endorse based on the hour I spent in line on Election Day, looking into having more vote counters uh, at each polling station. So I'm I'm in for that. That one actually has passed and is going to we're going to get a report on that. 
And then uh, Melissa DeGenova moved a motion uh, that's going to result in a report coming from staff on uh, where uh, building fees go, uh, what what building fees that are not self-recovery. So most building fees, uh, permit fees are self-recovery. So they, they pay for the cost of running the the permitting office and then some of them aren't apparently uh, and so that that report's going to come forward with but, an eye towards reducing the fees of permitting but that motion was specifically entitled the expediting development and building permits and examining fees motion what happened to all of those first words that are not just examining fees yeah they weren't really in the motion okay. um the motion is almost almost entirely there's some there's some wiggle room language but it's almost entirely uh reducing building permits or fees, not even building permit timeline, really. Because this is Matthew's big hobby horse is getting the building permits mm-hmm. moved yeah. along. No, and I, it's I'm surprising trying... because I do actually think most councillors support this. Yeah. Stuart talked about it as mayor, maybe not in the same emphasis no, as others, he, but he, everyone he did. Hit the, he hit the notes, maybe not in the key that I would have hit them in, but like he hit the notes of the permit delays are a problem and they are increasing the cost of development and decreasing the supply issue that I, you know, beat the drum for. Yes, I have a key in the drum. They're tuned, apparently, as opposed to whatever. I don't play a percussion instrument. I think really annoying to see counselors like draw the arrow, notch, you know, draw the bow and loose and just like come so close to aiming at the right target and instead hit the counselor beside them. Well, like think, it, it's just, I think Matthew, you're, you're looking to do a bit of a deeper dive uh, on this, on the show on uh, permitting and how it works. And I'm really looking forward to that because I think, and actually um, thank you for plugging this because if you are planning on building a house or building a building of some kind, and are interested in participating in some kind of like ongoing, more produced thing than the Cambie Report has traditionally done, do get in touch with me uh, through Cambie Report. It's going to be like a true crime. It's going to be serial, but the crime and the murder is someone's building. (laughs) Oh, God. Yes, but Um, not the most recent season of serial. I don't know. I haven't kept up. But the thing 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 for me is that there's been an argument that if you throw money at the permitting office, you might be able to speed it up by hiring more permitters. Uh, permitters? Anyways, I'm going to ignore my lack of English. Planners. Yeah. Uh, and the question to my mind is it... Permitters. I don't know that that works. And I don't know what speeds the process up. Um, but there's a lot of detail there that has to go into it. And it's not just a factor. I don't think of money. And it's not just a factor of any one thing so it'll be interesting to see there's so many permitters in our, our listenership that uh mm-hmm. I, i'm perfectly okay with saying yes we should f- throw more money at, at planners we should just do it throw money at planners everyone even um, on the street yeah. just like so, if you know someone's a planner uh throw money at them not coins that's painful and speaking of planners, uh, I mean, like Gil lob, Kelly, lob the coins. Uh, Gil Kelly and Sadie Johnson have been constantly been st- stepping up to answer questions for counselors and explain and walk through different processes and procedures. And it's interesting because we've we've had guests on in the past talk about this. How it used to be that had the, the the city manager and the, the the chief planner just stayed on for government after government after government, but that that trend had decreased over the last you know vision era. Let's call it. There was this criticism that it had 
essentially politicized or made the mm-hmm. nonpartisan staff offices partisan. Yes. Yeah. And I want to say, uh, having watched a lot of Council, way more than anyone should have. Including the counselors including there. Including the counselors. Uh, both Sadu and Gil have been really strong at being very even-handed and very careful with how they talk. Even when Gil Kelly was asked by Colleen Hardwick, you know, why is it that we can't just simply change the zoning right now? And he'd say, well, just as, you know, there's a risk of looking like you didn't properly consult when you change rules, you know, and if we were to do this change, it could be perceived by people in Vancouver as a a change lacking proper consultation, which was (laughs) delicious. Um, but he was very careful with his answers. And I think that there's, there's got to be in the back of some counselors' minds, whether they're, regardless of party affiliation, since there's no vision, vision people out there, that these are vision's old hacks. And uh, the, the, I got to say, those two, those two staffers are doing a very admirable job of demonstrating that they're there to help counsel. And to try to keep their jobs. Well, that too. Well, I yeah, mean, whether, like, whether it's... Column A, column B, yeah. doesn't matter. Let us see what they have to bring to the table. Totally, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then the last thing from council that I only discovered reading the minutes of council is I had no idea this was a thing. Apparently, city councillors can just request information at the end of a council meeting for future. I guess it kind of maybe works like... Certainly requesting the... information for the, pa- from, for the past would be like super useful. But... Well, one of them did. I request information from the past. Actually, several That's of these All are... information <laughs> is from the past. Oh, fair <laughs> enough. I guess this kind of works like there's oral question period in the House of Commons, but and that's that's the Mm -hmm. performative aspect. But there's also a lot of written questions submitted, and that's where questions tables on orders for return, and those generate a lot more information and valuable feedback that doesn't get as much press. And I don't know, this seems like the municipal analog. Yeah, well, it's 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 things as as minor as. You know, Councillor Kerber Young requested an update on the shark fin ban and how it's and how it's going. Or you know, Councillor Fry, in in keeping with Councillor Fry, uh, requested info on the tracking and enforcement of the the Airbnb regulations and bylaw, and how that's going. Um, but it also got sort of more interesting. Where you know, again, Councillor Kerber Young, uh, who seems to be looking to 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 really get her feet wet in terms of looking at the small ways to improve the city. Yeah, like making sure the sharks all have fins. Yeah, uh, but also asked for information on uh, the, the fireworks policy that we have uh, with an eye towards balancing cultural needs with safety. You know, because sharks live in water and I'm very, very funny. <laughs> um, but uh, Councillor Carr inquired about ways the city can help legions because she'd met with some legion, some members of the, the, the various legions uh, recently. And lastly, and this is one that Ian, you had, you had drawn attention to. Yeah, Colleen Hardwick. I guess she was frustrated that the city changed websites what, like four years ago? I think it was two or three years ago, but it was it was not... Yeah, it was relatively... It was in the last term of council. And she's frustrated she can't find info that used to be on that old website, and or she doesn't know where it is on the new website. But specifically, she's looking for the downtown streetcar plans. Now, I can tell you that the, the current website has that, 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 that report because I went looking for it about two or three months ago. Because that's a thing I do. I have the PDF hard link because I know I referenced that in a, a study that I was doing on Vancouver's uh, transit development. But yeah. if you are on the so, Canby Report or listening to the Canby Report, you are probably a streetcar fan. <laughs> well, uh, anyway. uh, I anyways. In any case, uh, it's interesting that you went looking for that, uh, in, but also interesting, like 
when they did switch over that, that website, we lost a lot of links and it, and a lot of information was lost that has, and it happens anytime you do a major website overhaul, but I, good on Hardwick for bringing that up. And also I'm really curious. We do, we do have a digital dark age problem yeah. coming up. No, like absolutely. it's, uh, and so I'm really curious why she was looking up uh, streetcar stuff. It was an NPA push to create that well, streetcar it, uh, loop. I, yeah, Suzanne Anton made it a, a campaign pl- pledge two elections ago, uh, and it was widely panned. But the the the, the no, the, it wasn't. Yeah, it was. I mean, perhaps amongst your circles, but no, I, no, I think was, that like generally it was, there it was, was widely a... widely mocked as being not the right project that the Broadway subway needed to take priority and so on. And I think it was I didn't didn't like well, the there way was vision. A, there was a chickens issue, but like, um, but I didn't think vision. Uh, I but didn't vision like the way mocked vision... everything that the NPA can did you, because can it was... you let me finish? <laughs> No. Go ahead. (laughs) So Susanna Anton brought it up two elections ago as a campaign pledge, and it was widely panned in the in the media as being you know not part of the ten year plan, as being you know we need to focus on Broadway and so on. And I agreed with all that, but it was panned more than it should have been because this has been a non partisan issue for decades. Of let's get the land together and be ready to build that streetcar when it's time to build it, and you know that is something we're going to eventually look at. The right-of-way exists through the Olympic Village for a reason. Also, Mm -hmm. like, it was there. There was a thing that was running. And it was awesome. It was great. It was Mm -hmm. so useful for, like, me and my own personal (laughs) transportation needs. Which is is the most important part of transportation planning. The most important part of transportation planning to me is me. Um, but yeah, so that's. I mean, like I know, like broad, yes, rural utilitarianism, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's tri- like how I try and live my life as a moral being, but still, like it really made my life easier during the Olympics to be able to get around False Creek in that particular way. Well, and it's. It, I think it could be a component of the next ten-year plan. I think it's definitely something to consider. And maybe Colleen Hardwick will be the one to champion it. Yeah. Well, she'll probably argue it instead of the UBC subway. But we're going to get to that. Ugh. Well, if we're on transit, let's talk about the TransLink board. So, so who is this new uh, chair? So Jonathan X. Cote being one of the very few returning mayors uh, to the mayor's council. Uh, Three. One of the very few. Three plus Lois Jackson, which is a weird I thing. And more as well. But in any case. I, yeah, I'm just going to say that Lois Jackson returning as a councillor is still more of a returning mayor than the mayor of Anmore. <laughs> well, but that doesn't mean she sits on the TransLink board. So... Uh, the TransLink board. It does, yeah, that is correct. Uh, the, the so the mayor's council uh, got together and they voted uh, Jonathan X. Cote as the chair because he's the only mayor. one to put his hand up. Because he was the only one to put his name in. He's he's you know he's knowledgeable. He's in the middle of you know you could say that he's in the middle of the region. He clearly doesn't need any more transit. <laughs> well, there's that. And the vice chair is Jack Fraze, who's the incoming mayor of the township of Langley, which was by far the least contentious issue that came up that day. Langley. I guess is telling because one of the things that's coming up is the idea of rather than putting this LRT around Surrey, putting the SkyTrain straight through Surrey all the way to Langley. Or at least to Fleetwood, which On is that when way. the money runs out. Yeah. Uh, TransLink did a really imp- impressive job having read the, the, the full uh, briefing paper that TransLink put forward on the alternative mechanisms of making sure to draw it out. Uh, essentially, you, you eliminate one of the stations on that line that goes to Langley while also eliminating all of the line that goes Newton, Guilford, Surrey. And then you start building SkyTrain, uh, which the mayor's council voted to suspend all operations of LRT 
in terms of the planning and outlay and build and to get Translink to come back to the table uh, with a full report uh, on SkyTrain. And this all follows the election of Doug McCallum in Surrey, where he's basically already in Surrey said, we're not taking yep. LRT, so give me SkyTrain. Yep. And, uh, and, and Kennedy Stewart has agreed with him. And uh, one of the things with uh, both TransLink's board and the mayor's and, and the and, and the Metrovan board are that you know votes are weighted by population, and if you've got Surrey and Vancouver, you only needed one of Richmond or Coquitlam or one or two others. And this raises the question of why would Stewart, who is generally seen as the progressive left of center, align with? reactionary right of center Doug McCallum? What an interesting question, one which the Surrey electorate apparently considered and was like, oh, okay, sure, yeah, okay. Well, yeah, and so that's... the I, le As Patrick, you said, the, the left, left and right. right conspired to beat the center. Uh, so I, I don't know that LRT or SkyTrain are left or right issues. You know, I think for McCallum to get that SkyTrain, they're going to have to reopen this plan and get more money. And... You know, Kennedy Stewart could see this as a way to really fight for more money for the region for public transit. And that would mean that the Broadway subway could go all the way to UBC. If you I like this. it, unless I hate it so much. Uh, like, it's basically, Kennedy Stewart has decided to uh, play a very dangerous game. I, I am agree. always in favor of very dangerous games. I, I don't... So... You know, that's we, why I think we should like outfit the curling rocks with anthrax or whatever. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. We've done this before. You know, the King George SkyTrain station only exists because it was originally supposed to keep going. The VCC Clark SkyTrain station only exists because it was supposed to keep going. And do you know what year VCC Clark opened? No. No. January 2006. VCC Clark, the SkyTrain extension to VCC Clark opened in January 2006. Well, it was here? Really? It seems... Oh, my goodness. Literally, almost... In fairness, I didn't believe that yeah. Vancouver existed beyond Granville Street so during my first year at UBC, almost, so... Almost 13 years ago, they opened this up that was supposed to be the the beginning of the UBC subway line. They've done soil testing for know, a number of years, despite scheduled. having no money guaranteed for it. Yep, they've done soil testing, the engineering is in, in line, and now we're going to build a SkyTrain to Arbutus. And maybe... So when, when you play that dangerous game of trying to get more money, my worry is that it ends up not getting that money and then we fall behind again. Yep. And just that it's fundamental, it's a very interesting negotiating tactic to say, well, if, I'll, I'll support him getting more money if I also get more money. And I'm, I understand the psychology as yep. an individual on that. But again, How many seats do the federal liberals need to keep in Vancouver? How many, How many do they have? A lot. Got, yeah, that's true. Fed Libs have got what three in the city of Vancouver, four in the city of Vancouver. Five. Is it five? And then add in they've got what three, four seats in Surrey. Four plus, seats. Plus Langley. Yeah. So Fed Libs have got, and, and what's the majority? They've got twelve seats right now. And we just mapped out ten seats that they would need to keep. Oh yeah, no, no. This is this is a big deal. Like it's well, and 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 Mayor McCallum has been very clear that he knows that you know who's on government benches in Victoria lives or dies by Surrey. And John Horgan also very much needs Surrey and Vancouver. George Heyman uh, is not a George Heyman is not a traditional NDP riding. You know, David Eby's is not necessarily a, an, an easy lock, and so on. It's not a lock. The Point Grey is a, a swing. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Not a, not a not a bellwether, but a swing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so you know, maybe they do have a point. So if they both get 
SkyTrain does not point. get anything. Great. Well, and that's that's Lin, like Linda Buchanan, who is now uh, we're going to get the vice chair of the mayor's uh, uh, vice chair Metro of Metrovan. Uh, that's her her comment is if you're going to reopen it for that, you got to reopen it for them. And then you know Port Moody is. And gonna... then everyone laughs and pats the North Shore on the head because. <laughs> yeah. Well, well you you were late getting to our recording because apparently traffic is bad in the North Shore as we're learning. Is it on... bad? Is it bad in the North Shore? The second breaking air... news. The second Did people bridge. die because it's difficult to get ambulances around that region. The second air's bridge. Yes. Just kills me. So the TransLink board is looking to send the future of the SkyTrain in Surrey to a little bit more consultation. To which Doug McCallum seemed rather irate because I believe in his words, the election was the consultation he needed. Yep. Which, I mean, that's the famous Obama quote is elections have consequences. And honestly, you know, they, I, I think you should go to consultation, but my read on it and what seems to be the case is Surrey has soured on LRT as a whole. You know, the people I talk to there, and this is not data-based, this is anecdotal, but the people I talk to out there and the general trend and the comments that you see on news articles and in, in, in interviews seems to be that Surrey wants SkyTrain and has soured on LRT. And so, you know, I disagree with McCallum on a lot of things, but I think he might have the pulse of it on this one. I mean, his big signature issue was running on SkyTrain. It's yeah. one thing to say, people voted for me, Therefore, I can do whatever I want for four years. Like a Doug Ford, I didn't have a platform. And now I'm doing all these things. Mm. Who needs consultation? And he didn't win by a small margin either. But at the same time, there are a lot of unknowns here. We don't know how much yeah. a SkyTrain will cost. We don't know what street it should go down exactly. Because it may end yeah. up being that people don't actually like the idea of a... Charlie Smith that seems to think SkyTrain tracks are ugly as sin. And he might not be alone in that, but... Uh, yeah, the, the routing is more or less, I think, determined. It's going to run along uh, Fraser Highway, just like mm -hmm. the LRT would have. And it will likely result in less uh, vehicle obstruction. There's, there's stuff there. We, we more or less know what it's going to look like. When we were under, when, Sky, when TransLink was undertaking their whole uh, visioning process and their whole planning process, they did reasonably extensive SkyTrain planning. Um, not, to the, not to the engineering level, but to like routing mapping level. So I guess this discussion and the city plan discussion and the duplexes even bring up these questions around consultation that... One of our patrons asked in the Slack, and which is, you know, what role does consultation play in a democratic system? You know, is are we looking at direct democracy kind of thing? Is that what it should be? Or is it more about just trying to get the pulse of the electorate? You know, should we determine city policy basically based on who shows up at open houses and has the time to sit at council for that open house nine that hours? at 2 p.m. on a Tuesday? Yeah. Or can come to council and wait six hours for an oh. undetermined speaking slot. Well, That's bad consultation, obviously. Well, and I think this is consultation is one of those things we have to grapple with. Like, I don't know what good consultation is necessarily, but also I don't know that consultation means that everyone agrees. Like we talked about with the city plan idea, consultation does not mean consensus group necessarily. Think. Consultation, you have group think. Consultation does not necessarily mean consensus. It means that you've been consulted. And in theory, somebody that feels like they've been consulted meaningfully, even if the plan moves forward in a way they didn't like, will ag agree with it. But I don't think you see that in practice. And so I think 
I don't know what the value of consultation is other than to inform a decision. I don't think it gets everybody on side. I mean, there is a value in giving space for minority voices, whether that's, mm. you know, racial demographic or even just a ideological minority to speak up and maybe in the idealistic Greek democratic way of just, I've made such a compelling argument, I bring everyone on side. I don't know that that's ever happened. And then but, we can all go and slaughter the Mylians. Yeah. Well, and yes. Uh, and also, like, you know, when we... When we <laughs> I'm so glad that someone got that. Uh, and also, when we, when we do consult, you know, if you consult a bunch of people on uh, how a transit network should go, they're going to say less transfers. Because people have a bad feeling about transfers. But we also know that in a system with frequent transit, transfers actually are a good thing. Because transfers mean that you can get around faster and easier and the system is more efficient. And so... Do... Oh, I actually really like transfers because they allow like a, a certain amount of, of spatial serendipity to occur. Uh, okay. And, and I think that as long as... Misconnections we... columns wouldn't exist without them. <laughs> That's what I was going with. Or as much. I mean, if I were still single, I would I would make a joke about that. But no, I see. I see. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Whatever. Uh, Sage anyway, so, so, the podcast. To go back. No, no, but no, no. Like as long as no, 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 no. Like as long as we don't put like our our interchanges and our connection well, but, points and like so places I, like Fibs Exchange. Like, like, like to be clear, Fibs I was using exchange, that as an example. No, no, no. But like, it, it's actually really bad to put transit connectors in places like Fibs Exchange as opposed to like the redesigned UBC vision for the you know, connector thing or, so, or, so I, sorry, I didn't mean that to be a debate point. Uh, <laughs> I meant that to be a conversation. Um, but the point that I was making, uh, was that, you know, people don't necessarily know what's good for them would be the, 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 the hard way to say it. But at the end of the day, do, does that consultation necessarily mean that the, the people are right? You know, if, if, if you ask everybody, like I said, whether or not they like transfers and they all say no, well, we know that transfers make for a more efficient system. And so what do you do at that point? Right? I, I also think that like if people could get into a lavender scented air cannon and be transported on a cloud of, you know, sea sponges that were organically sourced and then land gently in their, their place without having to interact with anyone, they would choose that. But that is like not viable. So and also would obliterate the sea sponge population. So, like, we have, I think, a, a populace that is, is not, like, fully apprised of, of what the benefits of transit are. Like, you know... Or yeah, mid yeah, sure. development, for that matter, right? Like, you know, people want to get from A to B. But, like, the journey matters, as J.R.L. <laughs> Tolkien tells us. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think, especially with us going through this city plan especially with us now apparently reopening parts of the 10-year plan for transportation. Uh, you know, what is consultation with a new council that doesn't have a majority vote? This is going to be, you know, a real question is what does consultation mean? Does it mean that you take in the views of a neighborhood and allow that to be a veto? No. It does not mean that. Well, Sorry, I'm I like think furious because my sinuses think... have erupted in the Crimean War. <laughs> Uh, yeah, you're not having a you're not having a good sinus day. It's like um, Sebastopol right but, up here. But, but it's a siege. But before we get too detailed, the, I think the I, there are city councilors that would disagree with us that 
you know, a, a neighborhood should have a veto. And I think that, you know, we look at it from a lens of what makes for the best city, what makes for the most equitable city, what it makes for a city that, you know, can welcome back the people that had to leave. And they look at it as this is my community and my neighborhood. And I know the people in my neighborhood and my neighborhood knows what's best for my neighborhood. And I don't think that. And I got mind check. Sorry. Well, and like, I don't agree with that way of looking at it, but I, we also have to acknowledge that that's a thing that exists and is not an unreasonable expectation for people to want to, to band together in their community. There's always a value, I think, to it, because there's always that chance you will hear a new argument, a new mm -hmm. debate, a new perspective that is not otherwise heard. And how do you collect those views in an authentic way that doesn't just lend itself to being taken over by AstroTurf campaigns right. or just those who have the money and time to show up yeah. is tough. And this is why consultation but that's is why inevitably difficult. That's why municipal politics is inherently so difficult to like gauge and so easy to game is because like there's so little engagement. And so I think it, it, it really is important for us to like write to, you know, counselor Kirby young when she is, is talking about, you know, her shark fin, issues and and say you know i support you or write to counselor we whatever we swanson mm -hmm. anyone we swanson car hardwick all of them yeah i mean and i tell them that they are good or bad on the issues that they are respectively good and bad on especially pick the ones that you like them on you know find a counselor that you just yes in right? particular yeah i you know i sent a message to suzanne anton 10 years ago uh, about a motion, a vote, that, a contentious vote that she did that I agreed with, and I got a really heartfelt response back. You know, and it's I think, and I don't, I've, I've never voted for Suzanne Anton. Uh, I think that's really valuable too. So consultation always going to be difficult. Here's looking forward to a city plan. Well, and the last thing to finish off on today, as we always do, is our Vancouverada, and today we want to talk about the East Van Cross. Part of this is motivated by the fact there's a proposed office building that will completely obstruct it and everyone is furious as they always are with every new development. But rather than debate the proposed, and I think it's the office for Nature's Path Organic Foods. Lol. All right. And they want to put that in front of the East Van Cross, so, so a 10-story instead of an 8-story. Is this peak gentrification? Placing, placing an organic food plant in front of a symbol of defiance for a community that was traditionally kept on the margins? No, I think this is presentification. <laughs> so the cross is pretty iconic. Everyone has probably seen it. If you take the SkyTrain from Main Street to Commercial Drive, you will pass it. And it's a giant cross that is oddly not religious for it being a Christian symbol. <laughs> I like sculpture. Well, and it, Build more it sculpture. It had been a uh, it had been a piece of graffiti throughout Vancouver as far back as the 40s and 50s, uh, and for decades, you know, this this sort of East Van cultural identifier signifier. And I think uh, you know if you talk to people that grew up in Vancouver um, prior to sort of our generation, because the East Van has really sort of shifted. And I think Matthew, you like to talk about this north south divide that now exists, but the yeah, divide but like only in the last only in the last like three, three years. But the, the, the divide really has always been east-west. Uh, and if you had an E or a W next to your address, it changed your, your housing valuation. And it changed how you were looked upon by the people on the other side of it. And I think, you know, East Van has a real sense of, uh, you know, had, had always had a real sense of being on the margins, of being sort of pushed aside. A chip aside. on the shoulder. Yeah, a chip on the shoulder. Specifically the P&E. But 
you know, <laughs> not not as opposed to the West mm -hmm. Side's chip on its shoulder, which is Chip Wilson of Lululemon. But it wasn't just symbolic. You could see it in statistics. Oh, I mean, yeah. I saw I was just hearing someone from the ten dollar a day childcare campaign talk about the achievement gap between children in Strathcona versus Point Grey, mm -hmm. and it's sizable, yep. just based on the income inequality and the differences there. The, but the symbol of the East Van Cross was, was always symbolic because it's a symbol. Well, and, and a lot of symbolism has been read into it as well over the years. So it's been that the, 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 the neon cross, which also neon is a symbol of Vancouver. Vancouver was one of the cities that had more neon uh, signage than any other city in the world at one we point. We have a Museum of Vancouver exhibit dedicated to yeah, we, neon. Yeah, we really took neon to another degree. Uh, like Las Vegas was beating us and that was about it. Um, I, I really like, I, f I feel it's such a sad thing when we... We look at some of the weird Rattenberry neon conglomerations that we were able to achieve on the Sun Building in particular, yeah. Uh, yeah. and 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 you know it's just so, a lost part. So a lot of symbolism did get read into that East Van Cross as well. Like I know I've had people tell me that it symbolizes the the, the lives lost in the downtown East Side, which wasn't anything that Ken Lum, when he came up with it, decided was a symbol. Authorial intent is meaningless. But, you know, it becomes a, and it becomes a thing. It's located at, you know, 7th and Clark, or 6th and Clark-ish, Grandview Highway and Clark, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's it's a real symbol of the, the east side of Vancouver that I've always felt is like a point of pride about, you know, as a kid whose parents grew up in the, in the, east, side, in the east side of Vancouver. And so as part of the Olympic... I don't know, art project. They fund this... The Cultural Olympiad, Ian. So they put it up in 2009, just prior to the Olympics, to help identify the city. Mm -hmm. So now as you take that SkyTrain, you can look at that cross and go, at least it's not as gaudy as the giant crosses that dot Montreal and the rest of Quebec, which are about Catholic supremacy. And, uh, yes. Uh, and Ken Lum closed, closed out the, 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 the thing. I'm going to go now because my sinuses hurt and no other reasons. Uh, and Ken Lum did close out the Vancouver Sun, this Vancouver Sun article that I'm reading from 2009 with, I also thought that East Vancouver still gets short shifted, uh, and it never really gets shifted, short shifted. It's one of those phrases that no one uses correctly anymore. Anyways. Uh, he also said, I also thought that East Vancouver still gets still gets short shifted. It never really gets its due, especially in terms of public art, which is also true. East Bay East Side doesn't get as much public art as the West Side or downtown. I, yes, that is true. Um, but, you know, we're changing that one poodle at a time. <laughs> yes, I was hoping you'd mention that. Well, this has been another episode of Canby Report. Make sure to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash Report. We'll have... I think I'm going to drop the Van Podfest panel I did with Alex DeBoer mm. and Charlie Demers next week. I'm looking forward to hearing it. And then we'll have more content coming out in a couple weeks, probably. I'm Ian Bushfield. I'm Patrick Meehan. I'm Matthew Naylor. 